News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What is with the price of some items at the grocery store these days? Just randomly, some things are incredibly expensive, like lettuce. Boy, we talked about this last week, and I'm still getting emails from people who go to the grocery store and suddenly notice, when did lettuce become this expensive? And actually, one story stuck out in particular for me is that I got an email from someone who'd just come back from a driving trip they had been doing in Arizona, and they said they saw signs at some restaurants and fast food outlets saying that essentially they weren't serving lettuce anymore right now because of the huge cost of lettuce and because there is also a shortage. So we thought, well, what's happening in the world of lettuce? Let's find out, shall we? Sylvain Charlebois is with us, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Professor in Food Distribution at Dalhousie University. Good morning, Sylvain. Good morning. What's happening with the lettuce? What's happening? Oh my goodness, everyone's panicking. Can you imagine if we ran out of bacon in Canada? Right. It would be be Armageddon. Um, Yeah, people care about lettuce uh, in November, I guess. Uh, This was highly predictable uh, back in the summer, early fall. California uh, was experiencing very dry uh, conditions. And that weekend plants uh, and a virus came along and destroyed basically three quarters of the crop there. And so farmers, many farmers just didn't have anything to sell. And that impacted export markets, including Canada. So in November, I would say in the last month or so, uh, both restaurants and uh, retail, uh, they've been, uh, they struggled to actually get lettuce, particularly romaine and, and iceberg into the, into the country. So they're either, uh, you either can find overpriced lettuce at retail uh, except perhaps for some specialty shops, they actually tend to get lettuce elsewhere. You, you can still find decent lettuce uh, at some specialty stores um, because they don't rely on California. Uh, but uh, in food service, they just don't bother because it's too expensive. Uh, prices have quadrupled in the last month. Yeah, that is crazy. I've heard some stories. I saw it myself at the grocery store. I thought, this is crazy. Does that also, once again, though, Sylvan, demonstrate to us how dependent we are on the state of California to provide us with this fresh produce out of season? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we buy for about a billion dollars worth of, uh, of vegetables, fresh vegetables out of California. But a, a big chunk actually goes to BC, where you are. And so, uh, so BC is, is more affected by what's going on in California and other places. But let's face it, I mean, it is cold in the winter in Canada. It's hard to grow anything. So we've, uh, the last 50 years or so, we've actually, uh, we've become accustomed to import uh, leafy greens. Uh, but this is not going to last. I mean, California is experiencing, experiencing some, some issues, but uh, in a couple of weeks from now, we'll start seeing some leafy greens coming from Arizona and Mexico. So we should be fine for the holidays. But, yeah, absolutely, you're right. We should. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an appropriate question to ask ourselves. Is this model still uh, feasible? Mm-hmm. That's what I was wondering, too. And also, the thing about leafy greens is that they're not hard to grow, right? Have we, like, we could grow yeah. those in a different way. Do we need to depend on this California to get all this? 
Not necessarily. I think uh, I know a lot of people are concerned about vertical uh, farming, uh, but there is a success story in Canada happening right now. Uh, the name of the company is called Good Leaf. Uh, in partnership with McCain, uh, they are, are actually building facilities in Calgary, uh, Montreal, uh, and uh, in Toronto as well. Um, I don't think they they have plans to build something in BC, but they're going to be growing leafy greens indoors 12 months a year. The the, the challenge, Simi, with uh, with vertical farming is that it is a capital intensive sector so you need a lot of capital but with a partner like mccain you can you can actually make a lot of damage yeah so that's something that would be coming in the future right as you pointed out as well if we start getting lettuce from arizona but lettuce grows very quickly right like this shortage will not last us very long no the production cycle is very short and that's why i I don't think we should panic uh we don't need to panic at all just a if if you actually think that your lettuce will price just wait a little bit, uh, it'll come back and prices will actually drop again in December, as long as we don't get a recall. Because sometimes we actually get recalls in the middle of the holidays, and people just walk away from the category altogether. So um, it it did happen a couple of years ago. I think it was actually the winter before COVID. Um, people just couldn't give away romaine because of a recall. So, but if if we're recall free, we should be fine. Do you think people adjust their habits, Sylvain? Do you think they go, you know what? Right now, that's just too expensive, so I'm just going to do without it. Well, you got to love kale, you know, or spinach. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> it's not like we don't have substitutes out there, you know. <laughs> that's true. I just wonder that with grocery prices the way they are right now. Are, are we all just kind of learning to adapt where we're, you know, now we're not just putting everything in our cart. We're looking at things going, you know what? No, I'll wait on that one. The, the, grocery discipline is key here. If you actually, you can actually know what the fair value of a product is uh, going online before you leave your house, before you go to the grocery store. If you go to the grocery store and you see an overpriced item, just walk away. Just walk away. Stay calm. <laughs> Stay calm. The problem is that everything seems to be getting a little bit more expensive. Are we seeing a stabilization in grocery prices? Like, what are you seeing? Well, so uh, we we are publishing Canada's food price report in a couple of weeks now uh, on December 5th. And so we'll actually provide Canadians with our forecast for 2023. Uh, it, things will get better. Things will get better. Uh, the problem right now is that the food inflation rate has exceeded the general inflation rate for uh, 12 straight months. And that's why people are still sticker shock at the grocery store. And, and I don't think it's, it's going to go away anytime soon. But we should actually see uh, things turn around in 2023. Well, that is what That's we That's all hope. I'm going to say for now. Oh, look at you. Look at you giving us a little sneak peek. A little peek teaser there. for you. <laughs> that is a teaser. <laughs> Sylvain, thanks for your time on this. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. The Consumer Price Index tells us that our food prices in BC have risen by nearly 10% in the past year. That is a huge squeeze on our budgets. So as a result, I think we've all kind of started adjusting our grocery shopping habits. Maybe you find alternative ways to buy foods. Maybe you're really, you know, I what I do is I pick my recipes, things that I'm going to make during the week. I grocery shop for those things. I make that list 
And then that's pretty much it. That's what I am buying. And I will adjust if necessary if something is a little bit too expensive. But there are all sorts of other things that you can do, too, to save yourself some money. Joining us now is Sarah Sodoroff, who's a PR manager of Too Good To Go. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Simi. What is Too Good To Go? Too Good To Go is a solution to that problem that you just referenced, which is that we connect local businesses with consumers to sell surplus food at the end of the day. So you think about the kinds of food that um, businesses, food businesses typically have left over. They don't always sell 100% of that. And so rather than either giving that away or throwing it out, we encourage them to put it on the app. Consumers can go onto the app, simply reserve on the app, and they get that food for one-third the retail cost. Okay, one-third the retail cost. I mean, how that's impressive. How do they do that? So this is food that they would otherwise not be able to sell. So any kind of margin that they're able to make on that is a positive one. We've heard from our partners across Canada that it's a really great way for them to ensure that they're not creating more waste, which we know has a really negative effect on the environment, and also allowing them to make some incremental revenue on what would otherwise be thrown out. And it's a really easy way for them to also get consumers to try new products and have you know, new people come in the door that might not otherwise know about them. Right, because you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. You're just going to get what the restaurant's trying to get rid of or what the stores, grocery stores trying to get rid of. Right. We call them surprise bags. Um, and it kind of has a fun connotation to it as well because you don't know what you're going to get, but you'll know the category that you're getting. So if you're getting baked items, baked good items, you know that that will be, you know, breads or pastries, croissants, things like that. If you're getting prepared foods, it's usually the type of food that the restaurant or the store makes. Grocery items are similar, and then produce is kind of like, you know, those things that, like your lettuces, your fruits, all that kind of thing. So you'll know the category, which is really helpful, and then what specifically is in there is always a surprise. Is it hard to get, like, grocery stores to sign up for this, Sarah? We, we love grocery stores. I mean, we encourage any grocery store who isn't currently using the app to join us. You can just go to toogoodtogo.ca. It's really simple. You can sign up there. And it's not difficult necessarily. It's really just, you know, we want to be spreading the word. We want to be growing responsibly. And so it's just about getting more people to know about the concept, getting more people to know about the app. And once someone signs, it's kind of like a proof of concept is so clear. You start to see more consumers coming in the door. You're lessening your waste, which is amazing. And you're also making a little bit extra money. So it's, it's a win-win-win once you've, once you've onboarded. It's really just getting the word out. Like when I think about this, then it does make me wonder, like, what was all this food just going to waste before? Sometimes. I mean, we encourage our partners, if the volume is high enough that they can donate to a food bank, always do that first because we know that as prices rise, food insecurity is also becoming more of an issue across the country, especially in Vancouver. And so it's really important for us to be able to also help to spread that message. We have local partners across the country that we partner with to ensure that we're also supporting the food insecurity mission to end that as well. But a lot of times what happens is the amount that those restaurants or those stores have doesn't warrant uh, a donation to a food bank where they're not able to donate as frequently. Whereas with us, you can just upload whatever you have at the end of the day or the designated period that works for you. And it really doesn't matter if it's that volume that would be, you know, kind of having to donate to, right. to, to a charity. And so it makes it much easier. It's a much easier solution. That's kind of cool. Okay. So where can people find out more? You can go to toogoodtogo.ca or you can visit our um, Instagram, which is 
at tugatogo.can. And I love the tip you gave at the top of the segment when you were saying that you were um, meal prepping and making those lists. We do a ton of those, you know, food hacks and tips and tricks on our Instagram. You'll see beautiful photos of the things you can get in surprise bags. And you'll also get some great information on how to lessen your waste at home, too. I do love the idea of a surprise bag. All right, Sarah, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Every once in a while, something comes along that might have a chance to change things. Our next guest thinks that they have created something like that, something they believe could make a difference in healthcare systems. And he came up with it when he was only 17 years old. Joe Landolina is with us now, co-founder and CEO of Crestlon and the inventor of something called Vetagel. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, normally when people are around 17 years old, they're not thinking about inventing different things that might help the healthcare system. How did you come up with this? I, I was very lucky to have an early start. My, my grandfather was a pharmaceutical executive that in retirement started a vineyard, and he learned lab safety in the 60s. So it meant that the day that I learned how to walk, I also learned how to go into a lab. So I got a very early start. And when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I was playing around with materials that my parents thought were safe, but so plant-based polymers. And I, I discovered a blend of two polymers that come out of algae, which are basically long chains of sugar, that when you put it onto a wound, or something that's bleeding, it can instantly stop whatever's bleeding, taking something that would have taken six minutes or more to stop bleeding and, and turn it into something that can be triggered in about two and a half seconds. Okay, wait a minute. Did you just say when you were like 13, 14 years old, you were doing this? I, uh, for, for better or for worse, got a very early start and had a bit of an unorthodox child. It sure uh, sounds yeah. like it, yes. Okay, but here's the thing, though. If you're that age and you come up with something and you think you've got it, how did you get people to pay attention and say that, yeah, this is something that could be significant? So when, when I was 17, I started at New York University here in, uh, in the city of New York, and they have a business plan competition where I, you can enter, and they had a top prize of $75,000, and I, I didn't think that I would win, uh, but what I did think is at least I can get some experience, and we entered, it turned out that at the time, we were the only student-led team uh, that, that made it into the finals of that competition, and, and by winning at the engineering school and, and placing at the business school, we ended up getting just enough capital to start building the business, and that, that was about 12 years ago. Wow. Okay. So then tell me about this product. You said this is something that can stop people bleeding, like if you have a cut, a deep wound, or something like that? Exactly. So, so today, over the last 12 years, Cresselon, which is the company that I founded with my, my partner Isaac Miller about 12 years ago... Uh, we are the only biomanufacturer in the five boroughs of New York. So we uh, make all of the products ourselves. Uh, we have a commercial product called Vetagel, which is actually a veterinary hemostatic device. What that means is that if you bring a pet into a vet clinic and there's any bleeding, whether that's a tooth extraction or it's massive trauma or it's bleeding in neurosurgery, this product can go on. It'll instantly reassemble onto whatever is bleeding. And in two and a half seconds, the bleeding stops, no matter how large it is, no matter how small it is, no matter where it is. And then you can actually peel off the product. And what you're left with is the patient's own clot underneath. And so you can leave no foreign material behind when you're doing that. And that's a massive game changer in the way that bleeding is able to be stopped. You just said that the product kind of reassembles. Can you explain that to me in terms that I would understand? Of course. So I like to explain it almost as like Lego blocks, uh, where we break down these long chains of sugars into little tiny pieces. And as soon as they go on to an injury, it rebuilds itself into this mechanical barrier uh, that effectively acts as 
an artificial clot. So it stops the flow of bleeding. It creates a mechanical barrier and it allows the patient to create a nice durable fibrin patch or, or a clot underneath so that if you peel it away, and I'm sure most people here have cut themselves while shaving, you put toilet paper on it. And then when you peel that toilet paper off, the clot comes off with it and you bleed again. With a product like this, when you put this on, it doesn't become incorporated within that clot. So if you peel off the gel, you leave that clot behind. So you're much less likely to rebleed, allowing a patient to save a significant amount of time on the operating table. So instead of a surgery taking hours, you can actually shorten that by a significant period of time and in, in, in upwards of 30 minutes, an hour or so uh, by having a product that, that can just uh, stop bleeding quicker. So every time you're making an incision, every time that you're treating a massive bleed, whether it's trauma or anything else, you can move patients into that healing process much faster. Right. Okay. So now you have something that you believe can really make a difference, Joe, but what is the process like to kind of really move this along so that it's in more wide use? That must be very challenging. It's definitely been a challenge. And Cresselon, one of the biggest challenges in the very beginning is that no one had done manufacturing like this. So one of the issues that comes along with a novel material is that no one in the world knew how to make this in a way that can maintain the level of quality and efficacy that we wanted. So Crestlon had to build our own manufacturing. We had to invest in 25,000 square feet of aseptic vaccine-grade production here in New York just to be able to get started. And once that happened, then we needed to ensure that we were in compliance with the various regulatory agencies in the United States, that, that's the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA, uh, or the Food and Drug Administration. And, uh, and with that, uh, with Vetagel, we were able to launch that product in compliance with regulations in 2020. Uh, and uh, we just last year filed with the FDA for first human use. Uh, so we're, we're looking forward in the coming months to seeing clearance for use in the United States uh, for human use for the very first time, which will open up a whole new world of opportunity. Even when we founded this company, our goal here was to save lives. And We've been saving pet lives. We're very lucky to have saved tens of thousands of pet lives since the launch of Edergel. Uh, but now we'll be able to transition that mission into saving human lives as well. And that's something that, that we're all very excited about. And do you feel like this could make a difference? Like people who are waiting for treatment somewhere in an emergency room, or do you, do you feel like this product can make a difference? It definitely can. It's, and it, it may seem like saving a few minutes here or there, uh, is, is insignificant, uh, but every single second that a patient is bleeding, every single second that a patient is under anesthesia is additional risk to that patient. So the faster that you can treat a patient and the faster, especially in bleeds that are not addressable by, by current products on the market, like major trauma, uh, like uh, penetrating ballistic brain injury, which is a, a recent collaboration uh, that, that Crestlon has started with the United States Defense Department, uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Uh, these types of injuries allow us to serve a massive set of, of patients that were being unserved before. But do you have any advice for people, Joe, who maybe think they have invented something and they need to get it out there? Because you sound like you have been working for a lot of years to get this out there. Definitely. So the first thing that, that I always tell to everybody is make sure that if you have something, you have to be passionate about it because 12 years is a very long time in life sciences and there are lots of ups and downs that come with that. And if you're not passionate, you're not going to be able to weather the storm of the ups and downs. And secondly, the most important thing is asking for help and assembling a team around you. And, and, and most people get very cautious about going out and asking for help or, or, or it's a matter of pride. Uh, but 
the way that we were able to get started was just by going out and asking dumb questions and asking for help. And the worst answer that you can get is a no. And if you ask 100 people, it's likely that you'll get 99 no's. But in that last time, um, that, that'll be the breakthrough that you need. So interesting. Joe, thanks for your time on that this morning. Of course. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the recommendation around how we deal with COVID-19 has actually changed. BC Centers for Disease Control kind of quietly made that change on their website that said people who test positive for COVID-19 are no longer necessarily required to self-isolate until they test negative. No, it's a little bit different now. So we thought, let's break this all down, right? So Dr. Brian Conway is with us, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so what is this change here? It, it means that we don't have to isolate until we test negative. Is that correct? Well, what it means is that if you have no symptoms and you test positive, then the requirement for you to isolate if uh, until you test negative is now removed. We should not be testing asymptomatic people. We haven't been for some time, and it's just in some ways, having the written rules catch up with what is being done in practice. It's a bit unfortunate. should have been explained better at the time, but that's really the one change that this represents. Okay, so what does that mean for people at home these days? So, so if somebody is sick and they are showing symptoms and they test positive, what changes for them? Nothing. They need to stay home. This needs to be interpreted in the broader context of the rules. If you are sick, Stay home until you are better, and it's probably a good idea that for the first few days after you reintegrate your usual activities, you've been sick, wear a mask for a few days to make sure that ongoing transmission is minimized. That doesn't change. Whether you were sick from COVID, flu, RSV, or anything else, you must stay home if you're sick. This doesn't change. Do you think, Dr. Conway, are people still testing? I feel like with so many colds out there right now and kind of respiratory viruses and illnesses that are people just chalking it up to maybe I just have a cold? Probably, but if they present to healthcare, certainly if they come and see us, we're going to test them for COVID. If they go to the emergency room, they're going to be tested for COVID. We still need to understand from a symptomatic point of view, from, from the point of view of people who are sick, how much of this is COVID. And if we see a significant spike, Then we go back to first principles and we say, look, we're not vaccinating fast enough. 15% of people have gotten their fourth shot, the bivalent shot. That needs to go up quicker. So are people showing up then in emergency rooms and then getting tested and finding out they have COVID? Absolutely. In our clinic, in the emergency room, in many other centers, you show up and you're sick. It's going to be something. And we would like to know how much of that illness, that symptomatic illness, is represented by COVID. That's the setting in which we are still testing, and it's important to continue to do so. Right. We seem to be swimming in tests right now. I feel like everywhere, every pharmacy I go in, they're all piled up sitting there. So perhaps we've gotten lax in this. Absolutely. I think people would all like COVID to be over. They would like it to be in the rearview mirror. We've switched from pandemic COVID to endemic COVID. We haven't used that word much, but COVID is just mixed in with that respiratory virus outbreak, respiratory virus season. It's a, I've heard tridemic spoken of, and that's really the flu, the RSV, the COVID, all of that is out there causing people to be sick. We need to be vaccinated. We need to stay home if we're sick. 
We need to wear masks when it's necessary to do so, and we need to keep washing our hands. The only change in these rules should have been explained better is if you have no symptoms and you test positive for COVID, the requirement for isolation is removed. Okay, that is good to know. Thank you for explaining that to us this morning. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the World Cup is underway in earnest. A bunch of matches being played today. England and Iran wrapping up. We've got the United States playing and Canada playing their first game, their match on Wednesday against Belgium. Now, we also know this is a very controversial World Cup, right? It is set in Qatar. It is There are lots of questions about human rights abuses, what is allowed, what is not allowed, the mistreatment of workers, the repression of LGBTQ people. It, it just The list goes on. There have been a lot of reasons why this has been controversial. So I know some people were surprised to find out that Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim is going to Qatar for the World Cup. Now, keep in mind, this was booked, you know, way before he became the mayor. So he said he's just keeping plans and he's paying for the costs himself. But there have been some questions about why he is going. Should he be going? For one thing, he's going to be missing his very first Vancouver Police Board meeting. And given all the criticisms and the crime issues, people feel like, well, I don't know, maybe he should be there for that first meeting. He says he's been fully briefed on the issues. But political observers and human rights advocates also say this is not the right message to send. Joining us now is Dr. Travers, Deputy Editor of Gender and Society and Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Travers, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. What kind of message do you think this sends? Well, um, there's a a term that we use to describe um, what happens to regimes with human rights abuses who try to use a major sport event to, uh, you know, clean up their reputation. And it's called sports washing, meaning you have, um, you know, a a regime with poor human rights records, uh, you know, laws on the books that discriminate against members of their own population. This has happened in uh, Russia, China, Brazil, and now in Qatar. And, you know, we keep seeing major sporting events like the World Cup or the Olympics awarded to these nations. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it allows these nations an opportunity to sort of be celebrated on the world stage in spite of the grievous uh, wrongs that are, you know, ongoing within their borders. So then what do you think of the mayor's decision to go to this, even though he bought the tickets, obviously, before he became mayor? When one becomes an elected official, the, you know, it, things change. The weight of his visit to Qatar as the mayor of Vancouver, it's a lot different than when he was a private citizen. And he's contributing to this sports washing of a, you know, a regime with human rights abuses by, by showing up. We have seen this time and time again, isn't it? I mean, this is something that many nations have done in the past. Absolutely, absolutely. And it just, you know, rather than being, uh, you know, like a positive event for sport and, uh, you know, sort of international cooperation and solidarity, we see these mega events as, you know, like they're about making money rather than, you know, rather than like celebrating sport. So I think that, uh, you know, we need to be a bit more realistic about this. Right. Do you need the other countries to climb onto this, though, Dr. Travers? Because that's what I wonder. If somebody can say, I'm not going, I'm going to make an example of this. But if everybody else is going, then what kind of example are you actually setting? Well, if we made those, you know, if we did made decisions about our actions based on whether everybody else does it, 
or not, you know, we would be participating in so many unethical things. And I think that it, you know, it really behooves us to, uh, to stand up for things that are wrong. But when you're an elected official, this becomes even more important. Vancouver uh, has expectations of our elected officials um, that they not, you know, sort of uh, legitimize the exploitation of workers, that they not legitimize anti-LGBTQ legislation. And whether Ken Sim is joined on the world stage by other leaders or not, I still think that it behooves him to, uh, you know, to behave appropriately. Right. What do you think of the coverage so far? I know there has been an effort, a real effort made to try to highlight some of this, right? Highlight that controversy. Talk about the issues in Qatar. Like, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's positive in that the human rights violations against workers in particular have received media attention, but it doesn't seem to have, to actually have, uh, you know, had any consequence. I mean, this was fairly predictable when Qatar was awarded the games. Um, and it, it seems that the, the decision to award games to countries is unhindered by this kind of media attention. And I think it, it's really important that political leaders take steps to say, you know, this isn't okay, we're not cooperating. We have this tendency, don't we, to do this, to let it happen, and then afterwards say, oh, that was a bad idea, wasn't it? Like, we, t- we do that over and over and over again, it feels like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, with the, the games in Brazil, um, local activists, you know, spoke out about what was happening, that, you know, favelas were being leveled and people were being relocated um, for the games, and that the extreme social inequality that was already in place would only be exacerbated by the games. And lo and behold, it was, Um, you know, the the costs to Brazil's poor were, you know, exactly as predicted and perhaps even worse. But it it doesn't seem to matter when decisions are made to award games to particular countries. Dr. Travers, what about the argument that this brings the world, like brings the world to that area, puts a spotlight on them, perhaps affects some kind of pressure, the potential for change. Yeah, I, I know that the IOC uh, sometimes said that. Yeah, exactly. Know, well, like, let's take the, uh, let's take Russia, 2014, the anti-gay laws. You know, there was, a, there was major uh, opposition to, um, you know, people going to Sochi after the anti-gay laws were passed, in spite of the fact that Amnesty International has, you know, had already identified Russia as, you know, incredibly racist and a place where visible minority people were often, you know, uh, at risk of violence. But here we are in 2022, and Brittany Griner has been sentenced to nine and a half years in prison. So you're saying, you know what, very little, very little actually gets done as a result. Absolutely. So what would be your message then to the mayor? I would say think very carefully about who you represent and um, take a pass on this trip. Dr. Travers, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Today in Victoria, the provincial government is going to hear from families who have children on the spectrum. Autism BC is going to be presenting the government with a report that shares perspectives from more than 1,500 parents and how they are being impacted by what's called Family Connections Centre. So we thought, let's get a preview of this. What can the government, what can the new premier expect to hear about? Well, Julia Boyle is with us now as the executive director of Autism BC. Hello, Julia. 
Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. It sounds like you've been taking quite a long time to gather everything in this report. It ended up being a much bigger research project than we had expected, but we're super excited that uh, it's done and we're in Victoria and presenting it to government today. Okay, and what brought this on? I mean, we were hearing from parents from the day that this was announced last October that they were really concerned. We were hearing, you know, mostly parents really fearful of the changes that uh, the Ministry of Children and Family Development had announced. Uh, And we were talking to government about it and just feeling like they weren't hearing us. So we decided there's nothing better than some data and some numbers to to show and represent how families are feeling. We launched the survey in April of this year, and and now the report is done and it's bound up and we're, we're ready to talk about it. Yeah. Can you give us a bit of a preview of what that message is going to be? Yeah, I mean, I think the the most uh, alarming statistic that comes out of this research is that uh, only 4% of parents and caregivers want the family connections centers as the the sole service model for their children. So 96% of parents felt that they either want to keep their individualized autism funding or they want a, a hybrid model where they either can choose individualized funding or the family connection centers. So Overall, it's showing that there is not a strong support for this change. And what will the difference be with these family connection centers, Julia? I mean, right now, uh, if you have a child on the autism spectrum, you receive direct funding from the government. Um, You get to choose who the service providers are for your kids, whether you want an OT, whether you want a speech language pathologist or a behavior analyst. Uh, And you really get a lot of choice as a parent Uh, And you can, you know, design the program around the needs of your child. At the Family Connection Centers, um, children and youth will have to go into a center and they'll have a lot less control over, um, you know, what services that they get access to. Uh, A lot of parents are worried about what they're seeing happening in Ontario right now, which has moved to a similar model where they have over 50,000 kids on a wait list for services for uh, services at hubs like these. So ultimately, parents are worried that the plans the government has put forward, are they're just not strong. And it, it's just not a well-designed plan that is going to ensure that their kids get what they need. Right, because that was the idea, right? The idea was that there would be more services, but it doesn't sound like there will be more services. Yeah, for some of us, when the announcement was made, we were thinking, okay, this could be a good thing. But then the government over the past year has not shown that it has adequate funding, that it has a a plan to train and recruit service providers, that it's willing to pay service providers at the market rate. Um, And, you know, it doesn't address some of the key issues um, that are criticized about individualized funding is that if you live in a, a rural or remote area, if you live in northern B.C., there aren't service providers available in every community. And this new, the new family connection centers aren't doing anything to, to really address that. Um, they're not putting funding into training and recruiting, and recruiting service providers to ensure that wherever you are in the province, your, your child can get the support that they need. Now, are these already in place? Has that transition period begun? Uh, so they are launching two pilot sites. Um, in in early 2023. So I'm talking about in the next three or four months, they'll be opening a site in in Kelowna and in the Pacific Northwest. Um, So they're they're moving ahead with these 
um, centers. But we're hoping that with the change in leadership in the NDP government, that Premier Eby will be more receptive to the concerns and voices of of parents of kids on the autism spectrum and hopefully, you know, look at redesigning something that, um, you know, is going to serve the community well. But now, Julia, maybe you can, for people who don't know, maybe you could explain to them, how critical is it for early intervention when you have a child with a diagnosis like this? It is, it is so important. And I, I think that, you know, that's one thing I do agree, like I do agree with about the Family Connection Centers is that you shouldn't have to wait for a diagnosis to be able to get access to services. Right now, the, the wait time for a, a public assessment uh, for autism in BC is, is listed at a year and a half, but we're hearing from some parents that they're being told it's two and a half years. So your child can't wait that long while they're, you know, they're, they need support and services. So while I do agree with the, the needs-based model about that, um, it doesn't mean that just because you're not getting a diagnosis, you're going to be able to get access to services. And that's what parents have outlined in our report, is that they're worried about the wait list that this new system is going to have in the absence of adequate funding and adequate staffing. Okay, so what is your message to government today then? My message to government today is that, uh, you know, we've, we've surveyed over uh, 1,500 parents and caregivers, and they are not in support of the Family Connection Centre. So we are calling on government to maintain all of the existing services and programs until they can go back and consult and design a plan that is going to meet the needs of autistic children and, and children with other disabilities as well in D.C., All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Julia. Thank you so much for shining a light on this issue and wish us luck here in Victoria today. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot to break down in that new public safety plan that was announced by Premier David Eby over the weekend. It's called the Safer Communities Action Plan. One of the things that that plan will focus on is addressing repeat violent offenders and the fact that they continually get let out on bail. There will be stricter consequences. There will be a team that is tasked with essentially following repeat offenders uh, to and you know to make sure that they are being processed properly, that perhaps they stay in jail as opposed to being let out on bail. They're also going to include 12 new teams to intervene in mental health incidents to potentially free up police to focus more on crime-related issues. But will this plan actually make a difference? And also, what took so long to put this plan into place? Joining us now is BC Liberal MLA, Eleanor Serco, who's also, of course, a former police officer. Uh, Good morning and thank you for being here. Good morning, Sydney. All right, first up, let's get your assessment of the plan. What do you think? I think overall there's some good ideas in the plan. I'm happy to see so much engagement, um, obviously, with police, um, the cooperation between, uh, you know, probation officers, uh, special prosecutor, um, obviously looking to work very closely with Indigenous communities. Uh, These are good ideas, but these are things that we've been calling for, including a directive to BC Prosecution Service for almost an entire year now. So what do you think is the key to making sure this works then? Well, the accountability. The accountability has to be there. So the fact that we have this directive um, from BC Prosecu- or to BC Prosecution Service taking effect tomorrow, looking and seeing a team that is comprised of police, 
prosecutors and uh, probation officers certainly signals the intent to uh, be seeking stricter bail conditions. But, you know, it's the follow through that's going to matter, because if you're giving people stricter bail conditions, whether that condition is to uh, attend certain treatment or to go to certain uh, classes to abide by curfew. If a person fails to appear in court or any other condition that's being imposed on them, if there is not the follow through, if there's not the intent to then charge them with fail to appear in court, with breaching those conditions, then we're going to end up in the same place that we are now with no accountability, people committing crimes with impunity and continuing to um, you know, terrorize the community. Right. So do you think that the kind of directives that the plan provides for are strong enough then to make sure that happens? I haven't yet had a chance to see what the directive includes, but, you know, I have to tell you, and you might sense it in my voice, that I have a level of frustration here. These are ideas that were brought forward by the opposition, called for by the BC Urban Mayor's Caucus as early as December of 2021, Um, things that were recommended for months. In fact, a directive was provided um, to David Eby by Mike DeYoung more than seven months ago asking for um, this directive to be brought forward. Repeatedly, both David Eby as AG, also Murray Rankin as Attorney General, repeatedly said this was something that could not be done. They said it was not lawful. They said that it was all Ottawa's fault, Bill C-75, their hands were tied. And meanwhile, on average, six people a day were being randomly attacked in Vancouver. And then all of a sudden, we have a directive going forward tomorrow. So it's extremely frustrating, you know, and in my opinion, this has been held back at the expense of innocent victims in British Columbia. What do you think was the holdup? You know, it's very hard, I would think, to justify this holdup, to be honest. In my opinion, hearing some of the the questioning to our new premier from the media, uh, Rob Shaw actually asked him, you know, why has it taken so long for this to come forward? And David Eby's response was, because I said I would hit the ground running. It's just evidence to me that this was held back for political gain. And, you know, sure, politics has things that you want to make announcements. You want to have a big splash and show that you're doing something, but not at the expense of people's safety. People in my very riding um, suffered as victims of crime as a result of of this legislation. And we're talking about a catch and release nightmare for this province that was virtually set up over the last five years because of, you know, um, not being strong, not Um, asking for people to be remanded to custody and looking for ways to um, have the least onerous conditions placed on people. And and we're looking at our new premier. This is what he stands for. This is, he said that his time at Pivot Legal Society advocating for people who have committed crimes was formative for him. It's not surprising to me the situation that we're in that has been built over the last five years. What do you think of the direction to the prosecution service then to implement what they're calling a clear and understandable approach to bail for repeat violent offenders. So essentially they're saying to the prosecution service, you need to fight these conditions more often. What do you think of that? I think it's a good idea. And I think it's an idea that's been requested since 2021 from the BC Urban Mayor's Caucus. So, and then it's something that we were told by Murray Rankin just a couple of weeks ago in the BC legislature that it wasn't in line with the criminal code and couldn't be done. So I think it's absolutely um, egregious that all of a sudden a, a switch has flipped. It's no longer Ottawa's fault. 
their hands have not been tied, as we've said. Cindy, I've been on your show talking about this, that, that there was more that they could do. I remember being asked repeatedly, is there more that this government could do? And I repeatedly said yes, including a directive to BC Prosecution Service. So I'm glad to see it. I don't want to be all, you know, uh, this is a good idea. And, and I'm hoping that we are seeing that stricter bail conditions for those who pose the highest risk to public safety are, in fact, followed through with. Right. But it's not just about imposing strict bail conditions. It's about consequences for those who break those conditions. Right. So that's what you're going to be watching for is that, yes, this is all well and good, but what are the results? Absolutely. And, you know, it's the results that matter. And, and it's not just announcements. It's not just plans. It's actually following through, ensuring that we do get the outcomes that are desired. We heard, you know, a lot over this past summer that there was unintended consequences of different forms of legislation. But let's be clear that over the last five years, these were the exact intended consequences of former Pivot Legal Society lawyer David Eby. Soft on crime, thinking of the best interest of those accused of crime over the right of the public to feel safe. And this nightmare of catch and release that's led to, on average, six people a day being randomly attacked in just Vancouver alone is a direct result of things that he implemented when he was DAG. Okay, so what about the mental health aspects of this plan, too, which clearly there's a two-pronged approach here. Is that the best way to approach it, in your opinion? I think that this is a good move. These are also things that we have been asking for. And so, yes, I think that, you know, based on even my experience as a police officer, seeing some of the um, intersection between mental health addictions and crime is, is wonderful. Again, it comes down to the accountability and how are we going to be compelling, <clears throat> pardon me, these individuals into these types of programs. Because if it is a condition, for example, a bail condition, if we can have people participating um, as a condition of their release or uh, programs that they can be uh, doing while they are in custody, these will be very good. But again, we need that accountability and we need to make sure that the justice system has the supports that it needs uh, moving forward. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. Always a pleasure.